Now, that's not just a, a question that arises in Matthew's gospel. It arises in our experience, right? It arises in my experience as a pastor. It arises in my experience as, a, as the son uh, of a family in which I'm the only Christian. It arises in my experience as a, just a, a friend who has non-Christian friends. And what we saw the parables do, the parables give us two gifts. They, they, the first gift they give us is they show us that Jesus sees the very same thing that we do. So we know we're not alone. And that's helpful. And the second gift that the parables give us is that, is that Jesus gives us a, a, an explanation through them. Now, it's not a total explanation. It doesn't eliminate all the mystery. But he does give us a sufficient explanation of why it is that there's a mixed response to his ministry so that we can press on and persevere by faith and continue to sow the seeds of his gospel in faith and in hope. And last week, we looked at the first three soils, if you will, three types of people. The parable of the sower, you, you just heard uh, Don read it and you read it yourself. There's, Jesus talks about four soils, four different types of soil. And, and he says in the explanation in verses 18 through 23 that those stories about the four soils are really stories about four different kinds of people and their response to Jesus's ministry and his gospel. And last week, we looked at the first three. And though they, what's interesting about those first three is though for all their differences, they all have the same ending, right? They all are unfruitful. So really, those three stories, you know, the, the, the seed on top of the soil that, you know, Jesus explains was sown in the heart, but, but not understood, not rejected, not, not, it's somebody who doesn't even want to try to understand the gospel. They hear it, and they don't even want to try to understand that story, along with the one that springs up with joy immediately, and uh, yet when, the, when trials and afflictions come, withers and falls away immediately. And then the third one, the person who's, who, in whose life the, the gospel that they've heard is choked out by the deceitfulness of riches and the, and the cares of the world. Those three stories, for all their differences, they really are one story, the story of unfruitfulness. This week... Uh, Jesus, we look at the fruitful soil, the, the person in whose life, right, the gospel is embedded and the, where the gospel is embraced. And so one of the questions we have right off the get-go is then, okay, you know, shouldn't we just talk about the fruitful one? I mean, why did we have to think so much about the three unfruitful profiles? And you remember that uh, what I shared with you about that is that, listen, you and I are not supposed to respond when we read those profiles of the unfruitful responses to the gospel. We are not supposed to respond to those fatalistically, like recognizing ourselves in one of them and saying, well, then it doesn't matter what I do. If that's my destiny, that's my destiny. It doesn't matter what I choose today. That is not how we're supposed to respond to these because though Jesus describes those first three profiles and he gives us the whole story from beginning to end in those profiles, listen, friends, we are being met by this parable before the end of our stories. Our stories aren't over. And so the reason that we've been given this parable is so that we, instead of responding fatalistically, are going to respond opportunistically, and we're going to say, I don't want to be one of those. We're going to cry out for mercy. We're going to say, Lord, don't let your seed, the seed of your gospel, I don't understand much, but I know I have a thirst. I know I'm a sinner. And I understand at some level that Jesus is the sinner, is the Savior you've appointed for sinners. I don't really understand a lot besides that, but that sounds important to me. Please, don't let it bounce off my heart. Don't let me let go of this. And I would just say to you, it does matter. It does matter what you decide and how you respond. This parable, friends, is about the urgency and responsibility of our decisions in responding to the gospel. And I just want to say that there is hope for anyone and everyone. Just call out to God. 
from your heart right now. We're going to look this morning at this fourth category of soil, the fruitful person. And what's interesting about it is Jesus starts out by saying, this is the one who understands the word and hears it and understands it. And then he tells us it's three people. It's like the opposite of the unfruitful ones. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to look at that that one profile, verse 23, and I want to make three observations about what, what Jesus, what we learned from Jesus this morning about the lives of those uh, who uh, not only have the gospel embedded in their hearts, but then embrace it. The lives of those who respond fruitfully to Jesus's gospel. And we're going to see three things. First, we're going to see two ways in which uh, the life of a Christian, what he's describing is really the life of a Christian. Two ways in which all Christians are equal, a one way in which they're unequal, and then we're going to see that their fruitfulness is always personal. So we're, we're going to see equal fruitfulness, we're going to see unequal fruitfulness, and we're going to see that this fruitfulness is always personal. And I'll explain what that means when we get there. So first, let's think about the ways in which uh, the fruitfulness that Jesus describes here in verse 23 is equal. And there are two ways in which it's equal. Even though you've got one that's 100-fold, one that's 60, and one that's 30, there's two ways in which those are equal. First, they're equal in the sense that they are bo- that all three of them are pictures of a staggering fruitfulness. And secondly, they're equal in this sense they all produce great fruitfulness in the same uh, growing conditions, okay? It's a triumphant fruitfulness. So staggering fruitfulness and triumphant fruitfulness. Look at these numbers. I don't know if they uh, made uh, an impact on you, but think about the implications of these numbers. Verse 23, as for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it, who not only understands it intellectually, but, but wants to respond and understand it with their will, okay? And volitionally, so with mind and heart, in the life of that person where the, the word is heard, the word of Jesus' gospel is heard and it's received, the fruitfulness that's produced, he indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another 60, and in another 30. Now put those into percentages. 30-fold means from one seed you have 30 percentage-wise, that's a 3,000% return. 60-fold is from one seed, 60 seeds. That is a 6,000% yield. 100-fold, one seed producing 100. That is a 10,000% return. Now, friends, those are big numbers, and those are meant to catch our eye. And what Jesus is emphasizing is that the lives of his people, the lives of those people who who embrace the gospel that they have heard, friends, that every Christian's life, let me say it this way, every Christian's life is a life of staggering fruitfulness. And I know that you wonder about whether that's true. The reason it's true is not because of the Christian. It's because of the gospel. It's because the gospel is staggeringly fruitful. Friends, what Jesus is promising us here is that the gospel of his kingdom, when it's embedded in a heart, when it's embraced in a heart, the life where that gospel is held onto is a life that is extended, a life that is enlarged, a life that grows and grows in a beautiful way. You see, Jesus is clarifying for us in this fourth profile that if there's unfruitfulness like we see in the first three profiles of people, it, it's not, that unfruitfulness is not 
a function of the seed. It's not a defect in the seed of the gospel. It's not an obstacle within the gospel. It's not a weakness in the gospel. It's not some limitation in the gospel. It's not a question of the unwillingness of God for life to be fruitful. No, friends, what, that, what this fourth profile is showing us is, is, is that if there's unfruitfulness in our life, it has nothing to do with the willingness of God and everything and only to do with the willingness of our hearts. What God wants, what Jesus is willing to give and what he can give and what he does give is staggering fruitfulness. Do you want that? Friends, what produces this is the gospel. Do you remember what Paul said in Romans 1, verse 16? He's not ashamed of the gospel. Why not? For it is, not it describes, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Do you believe that? Transpose that into Matthew 13 language, what Paul's saying, he's not ashamed of the gospel because it is always staggeringly fruitful in the lives of those who believe it. Think about our call to worship. Let me just ask you to turn back to uh, page, let's see, I'm not sure what page, page five in your bulletin. The first, you'll see the first text that I read, that first long paragraph, the longest paragraph. I gave myself the longest paragraph. Okay? Notice about halfway down, this is Colossians 1, 5, and 6. And, and notice what Paul says. He says, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. Now, he's talking to Christians. He's not talking, he's not evangelizing here. Well, he's evangelizing, but he's evangelizing Christians, He's gospelizing Christians, okay? So now notice the relevance of the gospel to their ongoing life as Christians. Notice this, and its fruitfulness. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing. See, that sounds like Matthew 13. As it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. See, the gospel is a power of fruitfulness. And the reason that Christians' lives are are evidence of this staggering fruitfulness that Jesus is depicting in Matthew 13, 23 is because the gospel is is a power of God that produces radical fruitfulness. Now, what is it about the gospel that would produce fruitfulness of staggering proportions in a life? Now, we could, we could spend years talking about that, right? And we have. Well, this morning, let me, just, let me just lay two things before you about the gospel. that promises of God based on the work of Christ that are at the heart of the gospel and that are the key to why, why the gospel produces so much fruitfulness in the lives of those who embrace it. First, there is the whole promise based on Christ's work of blamelessness before God that Jesus gives us through the gospel. That's forgiveness. That's a pardon. That is innocence based on Christ's sacrifice for us. That's a cleansed conscience. That's a whole person qualified to stand before God on the basis of the merit and work of another. Friends, if you believed, if you really embraced that your conscience has been cleansed, not by your efforts to scrub it, that your record has been cleared, again, not by your efforts to clean it up, that you have had your sins removed from you, not by your efforts, but by God himself in the work of his Son as far as the east is from the west. Friends, if you embrace that and return to that again and again, and I'm speaking mainly to Christians now, there will be a power of fruitfulness, and you know it's true, that comes out of your life, blamelessness, to live as a freed person who's clean, not just on the outside, 
but whose heart has been cleansed by the work of Christ in God's eyes. And blamelessness, what goes with that blamelessness that Jesus gives us is also not just blamelessness before God, we, we have boldness before God because not only have we had our transgressions removed from us, friends, this is the power of God in the salvation, it, it, the power of God for salvation in the gospel. He is, he is wiping the slate of those who embrace his son clean on the basis of Christ's work, who, whose faith puts them in touch with that finished work of Christ. And so all the power of that work then transforms their lives and cleanses and cleans them in the sight of God. But then he gives us the very righteousness of Christ. This is the other power of the gospel, right? What Paul emphasizes in Romans 1.17, the reason that the gospel is the power of God for salvation is because in the gospel, Paul says, the righteousness of God is revealed, is bestowed and reckoned to those who trust in Christ. The righteousness of God. Friends, how would you live before God if you were confident that the righteousness of God had been clothed, had clothed you and robed you? You'd received it as the gift of Christ so that when God looks at you, you are confident that he sees you with the righteousness of Christ. You go from not only having no debt to God, but in your blamelessness, but then being infinitely enriched. Friends, if you embrace that, you would see and experience a staggering fruitfulness. There would be joy. There would be the fruitfulness of freedom. There would be the fruitfulness of humility. There would be the fruitfulness of love for God and love for other people. Yes, a staggering fruitfulness. Turn with me to John chapter 15. is also in our call to worship. Look at verses 4 and 5. You know, what happens, friends, I mean, what I'm talking about is really just what you see happening in the New Testament over and over and over again, especially in the epistles of uh, the apostles, you know, after the Gospels. You, you see them addressing people who are already Christians and walking Christians back through the details and promises of the gospel that they believed at the beginning of their Christian lives. Not because they're, uh, they're uh, D-minus students, but because the only way that the salvation, the power of God in salvation is worked out in our lives, it's the same at the end of the Christian life as it is the beginning. It's that gospel. It's that good news of the person and work of Jesus Christ and what he has done. And so Jesus is, is showing us that in John 15 as he's speaking to his disciples. Now, now, the language is different, but the idea is the same. Now, notice verse 4. Abide in me, and I in you. That means stay close, right? Uh, remain with me. As the branch, now he uses an image, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. So now we know by abiding means be totally connected and intertwined with, Right? Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is who bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now that's amazing. Notice what he's saying in verse 5. 100% of the people, the whoever abides in him, will bear much fruit. 100% staggering fruitfulness. Do you see that? Okay, now here's a question. Who measures the fruit? It's all fine and good, Mike, but who is it who measures the fruit? And I know that for many of you, you hear this discussion and you look at your own lives, you see 30, 60, 100-fold, or working from, actually working the other way, 160, 30-fold, and you 3,000% return, And you're tempted to discouragement when you look at your own life. You're tempted to despair because you don't don't even see a 30-fold return in your life. 
and you really, deep down, do not believe that you're being fruitful for the Lord. Friends, be careful. Be careful you don't turn the perspective of the parable upside down on its head. Because that uh, quantification, let's go back to Matthew 13, that quantification of the fruitfulness in verse 23, friends, that is not from the soil's perspective. That's from Jesus' perspective. That's from the sower's perspective. It is very critical to see that we are not qualified to evaluate our own fruitfulness. Let me say that again. We are not qualified to evaluate our own fruitfulness, let alone someone else's. And there are a couple reasons for that that are utterly critical to how you actually live out the Christian life. I'm very afraid I'm going to kick this over. So if it happens, you'll know I was worried about it. There are a couple of reasons that we are not qualified to evaluate our own fruitfulness. And by the way, if you don't get this, you're going to get trapped in the labyrinth of your own heart. And when you start walking in your own heart, there's a point at which you discover this is a hall of mirrors. See, it, unless, you, unless you see... Unless the core of your life as a Christian is grounded in objective facts that are outside of you, you're very vulnerable. That's why it's utterly critical to ground our our security and our joy in the work that has been done outside of us for us. And not not to just let ourselves loose in our own hearts to pick up every stone and go down every angle. It's a labyrinth. So, reason number one why we're not qualified to evaluate our own fruitfulness is this. We're just not very wise, okay? Let me start with that one. Uh, the reality is, because of we, we still are laboring under the reality of indwelling sin, we don't see a lot of things that we should. And even what we do see... We don't see in the right proportions. And there's a second reason that we're unqualified to evaluate our own fruitfulness. There are times, friends, when God himself will blind us in his mercy to the fruitfulness of our own lives. I wonder if you've ever thought about that. I think it's very important because he knows, right? He's our gracious father. He's our loving father. He knows, right? He will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we are able to endure. And sometimes, if, if, we, saw, if we saw all the staggering fruitfulness that God is bringing forth out of our lives, we might be tempted to boast. We might be tempted to coast. And so there are seasons in our lives when I think God shields us in his mercy, not because he's cruel, but because he's a loving father. Because what he wants our confidence to be in is not not in our fruit, but in the Christ whose fruit that really is. So so think, think back with me again about John 15 that we just looked at a minute ago. What, what Jesus is saying to us is, right, the, 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 the emphasis there is abide, abide, abide. Concentrate your energies on your relationship with me. Make your focus uh, on your relationship with me. Make, pursue knowing me better. Pursue learning from me better. Spend your energies growing closer to me. Spend your energies, concentrate. Be focused, friends, on, on understanding my work better. Knowing my heart, my heart better. In other words, what, what the emphasis in John 15 is, is that Jesus is telling us Listen, you have my promise. I have promised to bear much fruit through all those who abide in me. So I am freeing you up now to stop concentrating on the fruit end of your branch. What I want you to do, my beloved people, is to focus your energies on the vine side of the branch. Trust me, if you 
Focus on the vine side of the branch, on abiding in me, staying close to me, knitting more and more of your life into my life, being more and more dependent upon me. The fruit will take care of itself. If you're focused, friends, at the, at the fruit end of your branch, you're focused in the wrong place. And is it possible... I want to ask you to think about this. Is it possible, friend, that you're spending your energies at the wrong end of your branch and you're not spending enough time on the vine side of the branch? Focus there. Focus on Christ. Build your life on knowing Jesus, not measuring your fruit. And, of course, everything I'm saying is all the more applicable when we're talking about our judgmental, critical tendencies of other people, right? So, staggering fruitfulness. Most important point I have to say this morning until the last one. The next point, the way in which all Christians are similar in their faithfulness, is that not only is there the fact of staggering fruitfulness, but there's also a fruitfulness that defines the Christian's life that is a triumphant fruitfulness. And here's what I mean by that. Friends, the, 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 the staggering abundance that comes out of that fourth category is an abundance that is produced out of lives that are in exactly the same growing conditions, exactly the same external threats, exactly the same internal temptations as proved obstacles to growth in the first three soils. This is utterly critical to see this that what happens in that fourth category is you're not seeing soil that's been kept in some kind of utopian isolation somewhere, where there are no temptations, where there are no trials, where there's no persecution, where there's no uh, birds or the evil one to snatch away the seed, right? No, what you're seeing is growth that comes up, not in the absence of those risks and in the absence of those challenges, but in their presence and overcomes through them. So, friends, if you're a Christian, (laughs) the fruitfulness in your life is a staggering fruitfulness measured by the sower himself, Jesus Christ. And it is a triumphant fruitfulness measured again by the estimation of the sovereign sower. Friends, the growing conditions for the Christian life and the growing conditions for the non-Christian life, the environment, They're the same. Yes, they're the same. You don't need to have a trial-free life in order to be fruitful for God. You don't need to have a suffering-free life in order to be fruitful for God. You don't need to have a temptation-free life in order to be fruitful for God. You don't need to be married in order to live a fruitful life for God. You don't need to be wealthy in order to bear much fruit for God. You don't need to be old and therefore presumptively wise. I should put scare quotes around that, right? In order to bear fruit for God. And nor do you need to be young with lots of energy in order to bear fruit for God. Friends, you don't need to be sinless in order to bear fruit for God. The growing conditions for the non-Christian life, the unfruitful lives, the first three categories, and the, and the growing conditions for the fourth category, the, the category of staggering fruitfulness, they're exactly the same. So what that means is this. If the external environment is not what we can look to, to blame, or to rationalize the unfruitful response to the gospel in our lives, then that leaves only one environment to explain it. If unfruitfulness is the story of our lives, and that's the internal environment of our own heart, don't blame your trials. Don't blame your hardships. Friends, if that's what you're doing, and at some level, you know what? We all do that. I do that. Okay? But you know what the best cure for that is? Figure out who in the church you know has gone through the worst trials. And then go have a conversation with that person. And, and 
and try in a di as dignified a way as you can to have your spiritual pity party out in the open in front of them. And be prepared for wisdom to come your way. If you're not around people who suffer and thrive, you can maintain that kind of illusion in your life. But the New Testament is populated only with that kind of Christian. Trials, suffering, and great, staggering, triumphant fruitfulness. Let's think now about the ways in which those three profiles of fruitfulness in verse 23, the second point, the way in which they're unequal. And the way in which they're unequal is very obvious, right? It's, it's that there are different degrees of fruitfulness. I mean, if the first point was about, uh, you know, what they all have in common is the fact of fruitfulness, staggering and triumphant fruitfulness, in the second category, what you, uh, the second heading, what you see is they actually have uh, unequal extents or degrees of fruitfulness, in one case, it's 100-fold, right? In one case, it's 60. In one case, it's 30. I wonder if you puzzled about that. That, that feels like a curveball. When you first read it, it feels like a curveball because, right, we expect all Christians to be clones. You know, God doesn't make clones. And neither does Jesus. God didn't create us to be clones. We all have different faces. We all have different fingerprints. We all have unique DNA sequences. Your differences matter. They are not an accident. They are artwork. They are not an accident. They are not simply a mathematical gap in the limitless scale of possibilities and permutations, this little slot that you fill. And that's, that's your only option if you step away from God's vision of what humanity is. If you, if you think that your life is simply the end or maybe the middle or who knows where it is, of this long chain of accident upon accident upon accident upon accident upon random collision of atoms with molecules... Friends, and you have no reason to believe that your uniqueness is anything other than just this totally insignificant slot. And on the other side is the vision that God gives us of being made in his image. Every life unique because God's riches are inexhaustible. His image, his image is inexhaustibly deep. He will never run out of facets of his image to explain. That's true in creation. It's also true in redemption. Jesus doesn't create a clone army in the church. No, everyone is different. And equal, here's a shocker, equally faithful Christians may not be equally fruitful. Oh, you need to hear that. I was thinking about this this morning while I'm shaving. Some of my most important illustrations happen while I'm shaving. You know, how many people probably heard the Lord Jesus' preaching in his lifetime? How many people have heard Somebody like John Piper or Tim Keller, who was here yesterday. Way more. And I'm not saying that John Piper or Tim Keller is equally faithful to Jesus. Don't get me wrong. I'm just, it's from lesser to greater, right? Just think about that. God is sovereign. Equally faithful Christians may be unequally fruitful. So, okay, so here's the question. So under the previous point, we asked the question, okay, who measures the fruitfulness? And we saw that the one who measures the fruitfulness, not us, and it's not other people, it's the sovereign sower. He's the one who measures. He's the one who harvests. He's the one who counts the bushels, okay? He's the one with the clarity of vision and wisdom to know what true faith, fruitfulness is in a life. Okay, but now the question is, how does he measure? In other words, what, what standard does he use? What is 100? What does 100 mean to the sower? Now, that might seem like a simple, dumb question. It is not. How do you know, friend, that what you think is 100 
is the same as what the sower, the sovereign sower, Jesus Christ, thinks is 100. Ah, see, I got you now. There are two reasons, right? I mean, our tendency, before I get to those two reasons, our tendency when we hear about this 100, 60, 30, is we immediately are tempted to move into this horizontal comparison mode, right? Whether it's through competitiveness or insecurity. I mean, we immediately say, well, 30 is bad and 100 is great. Hold on a second. There are a couple of reasons, right, that that kind of horizontal comparison with other Christians is, is not only unhelpful, but I'll say it's wrong. First reason it's wrong is every story is unique. And you know what? The only person whose story you know, and then only partially, is yours. What you think you know about other people, even the people you live with, it's nothing. It's just like this, it's this little sliver of the truth of their life and what they're laboring with on the inside. You, you, even as a parent, this is one of the things that amazes me, uh, the older my kids get, is how small I am as a dad. I'm not with my kids. I'm not inside their thoughts. Oh, I want to be. But really, I'm just like this, this smaller and smaller sliver. What I really know about their stories is very small, and I just need to humble myself. When I look at another Christian and I see what I think is great fruitfulness, I need to be very careful. I don't know the whole story. The only story I sort of know is my own, and even that is, is a deep mystery to me. So that's the first reason. The second reason it's not helpful is a hundred, what we think is a hundred may not be a hundred to God. Let me try to illustrate that with a pop quiz. I'm going to give you the names of four Christians who are known to you from history, and I'm going to tell you we've got a fruitfulness scale that goes from zero to one, well, really, it goes from one to 100. And I want you to rank these people on that scale, okay? First one, you, got, you understand the quiz? First one. St. Augustine, just in your head, put him somewhere. Got to give you John Calvin, number two. Number three, Billy Graham, all known to you from history, right? And here's the fourth one who's known to you from history, you. Now, I'm not a betting man, but I bet that if I were a betting man, You put yourself last. Do you know why? Because deep down, you assume that God applies the same standard of measurement that you just did. And that is almost certainly wrong. Friends, it is very important to get this clear. You don't know their stories. You don't know their opportunities. You don't know their gifts. You don't know their trials. You barely understand your trials and your limitations. You see, this is a very key issue in the Christian life. And early on in the Christian life, I haven't applied this lesson consistently, okay? But I'm helped greatly by... Uh, something that C.S. Lewis goes to great pains uh, to explain in the second to last chapter. Okay, you got that? Second to last chapter of his book, Mere Christianity. And he talks about this problem. And he imagines uh, that there are two people. One he calls Miss Bates. Makes you think of Downton Abbey, those of you who are Downton junkies. Miss Bates. Now, she's a Christian, And then there's a guy he calls Dick Firkin. He's not a Christian. Now, in Lewis's example, Dick Firkin is an incredibly nice guy. He's a guy that everyone would look at and say, wow, what a nice guy. Non-Christian. Miss Bates 
Not so nice. In fact, evidently much less nice than the non-Christian. And so Lewis says, it's just, it's just breathtakingly honest, Lewis says, okay, so wait a second, if the gospel is true, shouldn't that be the other way around? You know you're thinking that. And Lewis says, be careful. Listen to his explanation. I want to read you some of this. Miss Bates and Dick, as a result of natural causes and early upbringing, have certain temperaments. Christianity professes to put both temperaments under new management, if they will allow it to do so. What you have a right to ask is whether that management, if allowed to take over, improves the concern. Everyone knows that what is being managed in Dick Firkin's case is much nicer than what is being managed in Miss Bates. But that is not the point. To judge the management of a factory, you must consider not only the output, but the plant. Considering the plant at factory A, it may be a wonder that it turns out anything at all. Considering the first-class outfit at factory B, its output, though high, may be a great deal lower than it ought to be. No doubt the good manager at Factory A is going to put in new machinery as soon as he can, but that takes time. In the meantime, low output does not prove that he is a failure. Oh, that's so critical. And then Lewis goes on to apply this, and I want you to hear this. If you are a poor creature, poisoned by a wretched upbringing in some house of vulgar jealousies and senseless quarrels, saddled by no choice of your own with some loathsome sexual perversion, nagged day in and day out by an inferiority complex that makes you snap at your best friends, do not despair. He knows all about it. You are one of the poor whom he blessed. He knows, he knows what a wretched machine you are trying to drive. I cannot read that sentence without without filling up with tears every time I read it. Is that not comforting to you? He knows what a wretched machine you're trying to drive. Keep on. Do what you can. One day, perhaps in another world, but perhaps far sooner than that, he will fling it on the scrap heap and give you a new one. And then you may astonish us all, not least yourself, for you have learned your driving in a hard School, friends, don't compare yourselves to other Christians. Don't, don't look at the fruit end of their branch. Don't even look at the fruit end of your branch. Concentrate your energies on the vine side of your branch alone. And Jesus, Jesus has told you in John 15, 5, that he's going to bear much fruit. It doesn't matter what your story is. He's promised in John 15, 5 that your story will be a story through which he bears much fruit if you come to him. Paul says something in 1 Corinthians 15. It's very helpful. He says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. When you compare yourselves to other Christians or other people, what you're saying is you're despising the grace of God. When you envy other Christians and you look at your life and you see what they are and what you are not, you wish for greater fruitfulness in your life or a greater sphere of ministry or influence, whatever it might be, what you're saying is you're despising the grace of God. Because, friends, if it is true that it is by the grace of God that you are what you are, don't compare yourself to other people, you're despising the grace of God. But it's equally true that it is by the grace of God that you are not what you are not. Focus on the vine side of your branch. Jesus has promised through your story to bring staggering and triumphant fruitfulness, and he does not lie. Which gets to our third point. 
I want you to think about the picture that Jesus is painting in this parable. It's very important to have it clear in your mind. It's a sower who moves toward the soil to make it fruitful. That's why sowers are sowers, right? They are moving toward the soil to make it fruitful. The soil does not meet the sower in the middle. The soil doesn't get up and say, there's a good sower, I think I'll go to him. No, this is a picture of initiative belonging to the sower, moving toward the soil with the purpose and the power to make that soil fruitful in a way that the soil itself could never make itself. And Jesus is saying to us, friends, that he is that sower. And he is moving toward, he has moved toward the world in his incarnation. He has moved toward the world uh, after his crucifixion and his resurrection, right? And he's come and he's moving toward each of our lives in this room today, right? With the same gospel that he lived and died and rose again to make available to the world, right? And he's moving toward each of our lives with the purpose of making our lives fruitful. He, for God, right? He is the sovereign sower. He is in this room by his spirit. I believe that with all my heart. And he is moving toward your life with the truth of who he is. And his purpose is to make you fruitful for God. And it's not just your life. It's the world. He's going to renew the entire cosmos, the Bible says. And you hear that, and it's beautiful. But you say, Mike, hey, you don't know how bad the soil is in my life. If you knew how bad the soil is in my life, you wouldn't say things like that to me. Maybe that's true for other people, but those, uh, those grandiose visions of fruitfulness in my life, staggering, triumphant fruitfulness. Listen, that's got to be for other people because if you knew how toxic the soil was in my life, you'd never say that. Oh, yes, I would. What do you think the soil was like in my life? But there's, there's a proof that I can give you that's much greater. And it's so important to see Friends, yes, Jesus calls that fourth soil good soil. But don't don't misunderstand that. The fruitfulness of that fourth soil is not the story of that good soil's goodness. It's the story of the sower's power. Friends, the, the story of our fruitfulness is not the story of our fruitfulness. It's the story of Jesus' fruitfulness. And Jesus is not impaired whatsoever by the toxicity of the soil toward which he moves. And what proof do I have of that? The cross right behind me. It's the only proof you need of what I'm saying, friend. Do you know what Jesus did at the cross? Do you know the kind of sower the power of his sowing that he demonstrated that cross on Calvary. You know what he did there? He made death bear the fruit of eternal life. He made the soil of alienation from God bear the fruit of reconciliation with God. He made the soil of uncleanness bear the fruit of purity and holiness. He made the soil at Calvary in his death, in his offering of himself, friends, and all the benefits that flow out of his sowing of his life into the world as our substitute, he brought forth from that most terrible of soils, the most beautiful and bountiful of fruits. That's what the cross is the story of. It's showing us, it's showing the world, it's showing each of us the power of Jesus to overcome the worst soil. He brings the best fruits out of the worst soil. He he takes the soil of condemnation and makes it bear the fruit of justification. 
He takes the soil of God's wrath and makes it bear the fruit of love. He takes the tree of God's curse and makes it bear the the fruit of a tree of blessing for the whole world. If we had eyes to see the cross, we would know that there is no obstacle. See, the fruit, the fruitfulness of the Christian is personal. It's always personal. It's personal in this sense. It's always the fruit of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not the story of our fruitfulness. Friends, out of the soil of a fallen world, the cross proves to us that out of the soil of a fallen world, Jesus makes makes that, that soil of the fallen world bear a totally new creation. Why would we doubt his power as a sower? Friends, if he's going to renew the entire cosmos and he's going to bring a new creation out of that toxic soil at the foot of the cross, then friends, if he's going to renew the whole cosmos then we need to trust him at that macrocosmic level. We need to trust him in the microcosms of our lives. And that's exactly what Paul says. If anyone is in Christ, right? 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, behold, he is a new creation out of the soil of God's condemnation for our sin, out of the soil of our guilt. He brings innocence. He brings justification out of the soil of God's just wrath against our sin. He brings God's love and propitiation to us. Friends, if anyone is in Christ, if you come to Christ, you will be a new creation, not by your willpower, not by your achievements, but by the power of the sovereign, fruitful one, Jesus himself. And he not only has the ability to do that, but here's the thing about the gospel. Yes, the cross proves that he has the ability to do this, but friends, don't miss this. He wants to do it for you. The sower moves toward the soil. The king moves toward our lives because he wants to make you fruitful, staggeringly fruitful, triumphantly fruitful in the eyes of the only one whose opinion matters in the end, God himself. And for that to happen, for you to experience that fruitfulness, you and I, whether we're Christians or non-Christians, we have to come and meet him at the tree and to embrace what he did there and to rest and build our lives on that place where he proved that the best fruits, the most bountiful fruits, the most beautiful fruits come out by the power of God from the worst of soils. Let's pray together. Lord, we bless you for moving toward us when we were not moving toward you. And that is our story because that is what you have done and we love you and bless you for it and we pray now that you as the sovereign sower would bring forth from this gathering a hundredfold, sixtyfold, thirtyfold for your glory and our joy, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.